0: ...alternate chair who will be responsible for pulling me off the stage if I go off over time. Uh, So let me bring up the file. And there we go. And uh, five. Okay, this space policy is kind of interesting in this area. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration headquarters is here in Washington, D.C. Goddard Space Flight Center is in Greenbelt, Maryland, just north of um, of D.C. Uh, Space policy is an interesting topic, a hot topic these days because it's undergoing significant transition and change and NASA's trying to find under the the policies of the current administration, trying to find and and establish a new direction. So we thought it would be worthwhile to have a space policy session, not so much to talk about the political policy issues, but to sort of take an ASA perspective on the exploration of space and see where that took us. So I'm going to turn it over to my surrogate chairperson, Mark Schellhammer. Thanks.
1: So our first speaker today. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: is he here? Robert yes. Is, uh, I think you all know, especially if you were
0: in the top just next door, Dave LaCrone, recently retired as uh, from a position of chief project sub- uh, project scientist of the Hubble Space Telescope uh, at NASA, a position which he held for 17, 17 years, and uh, out of a total of about 33 years in which he worked on the Hubble Space Telescope.
1: And he'll be talking today
0: about the human impulse to explore. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> okay. First of all, um, a disclaimer, I am not a historian, I am not an anthropologist, I am not a psychologist. On the other hand, this topic of why in the world do people feel so strongly, have such a strong impulse to go out and explore their world and explore their universe, um, that is an intriguing question to me, and so I thought I would give it a little thought. I think this is one of those microphones where you either hear it or you don't hear it. So hang on just a second, see if I can see if I can get this to work. Hmm. Okay, can you hear that? That's cool. All right. This is good. All right. Thanks. Now, if you please speak up if you can't hear me. Okay, the hum, human impulse to explore, is there a spiritual component? And you will notice that I have included this copyrighted photograph taken of the Sistine Chapel as, as a clue to what I think the answer is. So let's talk a little bit about that. This is really a, a wonderful find. I'm sure I'm not the first to have made it, but... Uh, I found this while doing research for this talk. Notice at the bottom, you've heard this before, a quote from Gene Roddenberry, space, the final frontier, these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, her five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Notice this was the early version before political correctness, where it had to be changed to where no one has gone before. It turns out that quote has its roots in an official federal government document. In 1958, uh, Dwight Eisenhower commissioned a science advisory committee headed by Dr. James Killian, and the membership's listed. I'm sure you can't read it, but it's a very distinguished group of scientists to try to define a, a policy with regard to the exploration of space. Am I breaking up? I mean, can you hear me? Thanks. Is that good? That's good. And you can actually hear me, because otherwise I can just shout. Um, So I've extracted uh, and blown up here a subparagraph of that. It is useful to distinguish among four factors which give importance, urgency, and inevitability to the advancement of space technology. The first of these factors is the compelling urge of man to explore and to discover. The thrust of curiosity that leads men to try to go where no one has gone before. Sound familiar? Most of the surface of the Earth has now been explored and men now turn to the exploration of outer space as their next objective. So, uh, White Eisenhower wrote an introduction uh, to this pamphlet. He asked that it be widely distributed throughout the government and to the public and it preceded the National Space Act, which formed NASA. So this is a formative document and uh, I wanted to latch on the first of the four factors. The other three factors were scientific research, technology development, and military needs, um, because it does identify as the number one factor of this compelling urge men and women apparently have to explore their environment. Okay, so where does that come from? Well, one way to look at it is perhaps it is a result of evolution, and we had this wonderful tour Friday evening at the Hall of Human Origins Uh, Rick Potts is going to talk about this again tonight. So I've cribbed a couple of images off their website just to set the the tone for uh, evolutionary factors. The impulse to explore was probably selective for survival in in human evolution. After all, people had to search for sources of food. They had to search for shelter. They had to go looking for potential enemies or hostile uh, adversaries. And if adverse conditions came along, like severe drought over a long period of time, they would have to flee and find somewhere else to live. So, obviously, people who have the capability to go out and explore the surrounding countryside or even go over great distances to explore the potential areas where, where it would be better, where they would have a better life, um, that should be, um, ad- allow adaptation of people of that kind to survive. Uh, When you think a little bit about the human characteristics that would be conducive to exploration, an ability to reason, that is to observe and draw inferences, uh, compelling curiosity, some creativity, there's a river there, I've got to get across it, how do I get across it? Well, here's a log that floats, let me use that to build a canoe and go across. Anticipation of the future, worrying about the future, worrying about what's going to happen beyond the next day or the next hour. And then conducive physiology, and as we saw at the Hall of Human Origins, that includes large brain, the development of a large brain, the development of um, sensory perceptions that at least were adequate, a nice balanced set of sight and hearing and smell and taste. Long legs. People who had longer legs were better able to explore over greater distances than people with shorter legs. Cro-Magnon man had long legs, Neanderthal man had short legs. So one could think of it this impulse as something that came from our heritage in evolution as a matter of our own survival and has persisted in our in our dna i suppose now i'm going to concentrate on european the european story of course exploration uh goes way back thousands of years and isn't limited to europe but this is the story as i'd like to tell it so i'm going to distinguish between two types of exploration physical exploration of the earth's surface And later, I'll talk about intellectual exploration, exploration from a scientific perspective and exploration of the universe. Um, Three common examples we've all learned about in grade school, Columbus, Magellan, and Hudson. Uh, Their voyages were dominantly motivated by the desire to find an alternate trade route, uh, sea route to Asia, to the Orient for trade, this was after the Turks, the Ottoman Turks seized Constantinople in uh, 1453. And after that event, uh, that was much more difficult to travel over land routes uh, to Asia. So it was very uh, important to get a sea route. Um, obviously, they, the people who sent them on these trips desired to claim and colonize newly discovered lands. There was a strong impetus to convert uh, indigenous peoples to, to European religion. And of course, there was a quest for gold and other riches. And I'm not going to read it all, but there's a quote down here from the contract between Christopher Columbus and Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain. And what it basically says is that after expenses are subtracted, Christopher Columbus gets 10% of anything that he can find by way of merchandise, pearls, precious stones, gold, silver, spices, and other objects and merchandise whatsoever. By the way, that wasn't his only reward, but that was one aspect. So basically commerce and the search for wealth were strong motivators in this kind of early exploration. But at the same time, there was another kind of exploration going on, trying to understand the natural world. And and I call this intellectual exploration or scientific exploration. For well-known examples, Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, and Newton Copernicus, of course, derived the Copernican system for the solar system, the, the sun being center and, uh, central and the planets going around the sun instead of around the earth. Galileo, of course, strongly defended the Copernican system and, uh, to the Catholic Church, and that got him into some hot water. But more importantly, he used his very improved, much improved telescopes to actually obtain observational evidence by observing the sky that supported the Copernican idea. Then Kepler used, uh, and I haven't shown Brahe's picture here, but Kepler used very precise measurements of planetary positions in the sky relative to the background stars uh, to derive his three laws of planetary motion. And those observations were from the Danish astronomer Tika Brahe. And then, of course, Isaac Newton took all of this prior work and converted it into his laws of motion and the law of gravity. Now, what motivated these people? Why in the world would they, in some cases, put their lives at risk Uh, as Galileo did, as uh, Giordano Bruno did, as you heard in the earlier talk. Why would they do that? Well, uh, it's kind of interesting when you read their writings. Copernicus, this is a little long, but Copernicus said, For who, while intent upon things which he sees to be established in the best possible arrangement and directed by divine ordinance, would not, by assiduous contemplation of them, etc., be impelled toward the best, and would not feel wonder for the maker of all in whom is all happiness and every good thing. That's the, from the introduction to book one of De Revolutionibus. Okay, Galileo. When I consider what marvelous things men have understood, what he has inquired into and contrived, I know only too clearly that the human mind is a work of God and one of the most excellent. Kepler. I believe it was by divine ordinance that I obtained by chance that which previously I could not reach by any pains. I believe that so much the more readily because I had always prayed to God to let my plan succeed if Copernicus had had told the truth. And Newton, who wrote extensively about religion, it is the perfection of God's works that they are all done with the greatest simplicity. He is the God of order and not of confusion. So to me, there's a huge commentary running through the writings of all these people that they were serving their God. And they were exploring the universe because that's what they felt God wanted them to do, and God was actively helping them in the endeavor. Okay, now there came a time when what I call physical exploration, intellectual exploration, began to merge. And people were sent out on trips of voyages of discovery, voyages of exploration, with, in some cases, scientific purposes. So an example of that is Captain James Cook. There's a, a replica, a nice image of a replica of his ship, the HMS or HMB Endeavour. And he was sent in um, 1771. No, sorry, when was it? 1760, he arrived in Tahiti in 1769 or late 1768 to observe the timing of a transit of the sun across Venus. To illustrate what a transit of the sun by Venus looks like, here's a, in the bottom right is a 2004 example and that's the disk of Venus projected against the background of the sun. Okay, So the idea was that people, observers separated by wide distances across the Earth, could precisely measure the time of ingress or egress of Venus as it passes in front of the sun, and because of the timing differences, because of their points of observation, they could use the parallax effect to measure the absolute distance to Venus and the absolute distance to the sun. And at that time, the relative distances, the relative size of the solar system, relative distances of the planets through the solar system was well understood. But um, this, this was the opportunity, they thought, to make an absolute measurement of what was called the astronomical um, unit, the AU. You're going to tell me when I'm over time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so just, but just in summary, on July 11, 1771, Cook returned to England the surviving crew had circumnavigated the globe, cataloged thousands of species of plants, insects and animals, encountered new to them races of people and hunted for actually a giant continent that scientists thought had to exist in the Southern Hemisphere to balance the land mass that was in the Northern Hemisphere. So at the end of the day, it didn't work out so well because of a problem called black drops. It's very difficult because of the limited resolution of the human eye and the fuzzy atmosphere around Venus to precisely do the timing. But Cook carried along an astronomer, a guy named Charles Green, and his drawings are on the bottom and Cook's drawings are on the top of the event they saw in Tahiti. So a voyage specifically intended to to answer scientific questions. Now let me skip, uh, of course, exploration didn't stop there, but let me skip now way forward to uh, the day of the space age. I think the exploration of the moon is analogous to the early physical Exploration by uh, Magellan and, and Columbus and Henry Hudson and others. Um, Apollo 11 lifting off Earthrise as viewed from Apollo 11. Buzz Aldrin actually standing near a scientific experiment, a solar wind collecting uh, uh, sail there to collect solar wind particles on Apollo 11. Lower right, uh, Jack Schmidt, uh, actual PhD geologist doing geology on the surface of the moon in Apollo 17. But the science was by no means the most important motivator. National security interests during the Cold War, development of the technologies, uh, which also had military applications, potential discovery of useful resources on the moon, possibly, a continued urge to explore unknown lands, that subjective kind of tenuous Motivation and then sort of at the bottom of the list was the scientific interest in the early solar systems history And the evidence of the lack of scientific motivation is that after Apollo 17 the program was canceled Even though there were three more missions planned Okay, so beyond that that kind of is the end of human physical exploration at least to this point but we send surrogates robots out into our solar system to continue the process And I really think this process is more dominated by science, intellectual exploration, and what I think with a question mark is possibly a metaphysical motivation. Uh, You see uh, Mars exploration rover Spirit. This is a simulated image where that's a real image of the Martian surface taken by Spirit, and then someone has superimposed on it an accurate image photograph of the Spirit itself. And you can see on the lower left, those blue-green rocks are evidence for past water on Mars. Uh, their magnesium iron carbonate, predominant, well, not predominantly, but in large measure, about 25%, uh, those were imaged by spirit. That carbonate would dissolve and in, in particularly had to have been formed in the presence of water and would dissolve in the presence of acidic water. So that means that it's evidence for a neutral or, or somewhat alkaline ocean or a hy- uh, hydrological environment on Mars. Follow the water. That's the mantra about Martian exploration. Uh, you see an artist's concept up there at the top of uh, the Cassini probe of Saturn releasing um, the, uh, the Huygens probe uh, developed by the European Space Agency into the atmosphere of Saturn's moon Titan. And for the first time, we actually have images of the surface of Titan. Its atmosphere is filled with methane and other nasty stuff, and it's always been very difficult to image the surface. On the lower right, you see an entry image taken as, as the Huygens probe was parachuting to the surface. You see rivers. You see a lake bed. But the liquid involved wasn't water. It was liquid methane. And right now, those are dry. So this was past activity, although probably fairly recent. So that's a dry lake bed, dry river beds. On the upper right, that's the first color image transmitted from the surface of Titan. What looked like rocks are probably made of water ice. Okay, so what are the motivations for this kind of exploration of the solar system? Search for evidence of biology, past or present. Ch- characterize properties and processes. Accumulate clues about the early, solar system, other, the early solar system. Assess potential for habitability on Mars in particular. But the main point is search for biology. Search for life. Why would you care? If you found evidence of fossil microbial life on Mars, we're not going to talk to it. We're not going to engage in commerce with it. It might tell us a little bit about the idea that evolution goes on elsewhere and not just on the earth, but why would you spend all this money and go to all that trouble? I think it's a metaphysical problem. I think we want to look for other life. I think we actually hope to find it or to determine that we're so special in God's eyes that it wasn't necessary to put advanced life forms anywhere else, which I strongly doubt. So I think here this is getting into metaphysical exploration. Again, driven by the human impulse for that kind of scientific research that I believe is, that comes from God. Uh, Jennifer, in her talk just a few minutes ago, talked a lot about the Hubble Space Telescope and the servicing mission. Hubble has used now to continue what what you might call the process of exploration out into the universe that started by Galileo and his telescope. Um, again, I think this is both intellectual, scientific and metaphysical. On the lower left is the Hubble Ultra Deep Field that Jennifer also showed that's humanity's deepest view ever of the visible universe, and that same image is shown there on the right with circles around particular imaged objects that are, in fact, proto-galaxies, small pre-galactic clumps of stars, and uh, mostly just stars. There's not much dust in these um, that actually emitted their light that we are now seeing when the universe was uh, 600 to 800 million years old after the Big Bang. So we're looking very close back in time to the time when the first stars and the first clumpiness of galaxies began to assemble, and ultimately that becomes uh, galaxies of our, like our own Milky Way as time goes on and they evolve. Okay, metaphysical, again. Tell me the practical benefits, military or you know, otherwise, social or otherwise, of, of this kind of observation. Why do we devote so much effort to doing it? This is the prettiest picture I have to show. Um, These are the parameters, the major parameters, measured by the WMAP satellite, Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Pro, also by Hubble and by ground-based telescopes. These are the parameters that describe what is now called the concordance model of cosmology. It is the modern model of cosmology. Lambda CDM means cold dark matter with a cosmological constant, Lambda. And it's called concordance for two reasons. First of all... um, it, it basically is able to explain or organize all the observations. Really, there are no outstanding, modern, accurate observations of any phenomena in the universe, including large-scale structure, including expansion rate, including size, including content, that is not incorpor- cannot be incorporated and, and subsumed within this model. Secondly, it's concordance because each of these important parameters has been measured by war- more than one independent technique, and they all give the same answer. So there's, significant, there's very little disagreement. The numbers in this reproduction are a little fuzzy, and that's okay, because the numbers are continuing to be updated, because the WMAP satellite is continuing to operate, and will continue to operate for the next year or two. And the more data it collects, the more accurate these numbers come. So you see, the universe is 13.72 plus or minus 0.12 billion years old. That's also consistent with the ages of the oldest stars. It's consistent in a general sense with the ages of the ro- oldest rocks in, in the solar system, which are about four and a half billion years old. So time scales of billions of years. Um, well, I'm not gonna spend more time on that, but it, every one of those numbers ha- represents a story that, that can be told. And, and I think this is wonderful. It's only in our age, uh, we're alive in an age when it's possible to do precision cosmology and put these very small error bars on very profound measures of the properties of the universe. Thank you. That's about right. Okay, a few reflections and observations now that get into my feelings about what this all means, about why we're compelled to explore, and in particular, scientific or intellectual exploration. First of all, you've got to understand, scientists are honest, smart, objective, careful, methodical, systematic, and good-looking. Uh, we don't make this stuff up. We try very hard to get the answers right. And... and Scientists take great pleasure and earn great fame in disproving a hypothesis or finding faults in well-established theories. You could get really famous, or you could win a Nobel Prize by showing that Newtonian gravity isn't correct or that general relativity isn't correct or that there's some fundamental discrepancy in quantum mechanics, and you're the first to discover this. So you get really famous by by being the, the guy who disproves things, doesn't assert that they're true. And so understand science is not a belief system. It thrives on just the facts, ma'am, and inferences drawn from the facts. And if the facts don't hold up, up, uh, if models or theories don't hold up to the facts as observed, then you've got to change the models or theories. Scientists are very good at determining what, where, when, and how. They are not well-equipped to determine, capitalized, why, as in for what reason or purpose. Sounds very much like what Francis Collins said last night. I swear I wrote this chart before I heard him speak. So I think it just shows that these are fairly straightforward ideas uh, that people need to think about. So, why do we continue to explore the solar system, our galaxy, and the universe? There's an atheistic perspective. Humans are driven by evolved traits to be curious, to ask questions, to seek understanding. Our current knowledge is sufficiently well-founded to allow us to draw conclusions about the universe at very precise levels, as you saw. We can explain the universe, its contents, its phenomenology, as having evolved from nothing. Starting with the Big Bang, which presumably had nothing preceding it, the universe has been driven inexorably by the laws of physics, either as currently understood or, since we don't fully currently understand the laws of physics, as likely to be understood in the future. We can't explain why there was a Big Bang today, as scientists, but surely in the future we'll figure it out. God is unnecessary. Now, There's one other problem with this, Humanity's explorations over centuries or millennia, undertaken at great effort, risk, and cost, and, and loss of life, have now led to the fundamentally to the conclusion that there is no purpose to our existence. The metaphysical question "why" is meaningless. So, congratulations, guys. You have succeeded in proving that you were unnecessary, and that, and that human life was just a, a blip on the radar screen of the cosmos. Okay, if you don't like that, you can answer the question from, if you happen to start, and by the way, that's their prerogative, as philosophical prerogative, if that's what you want to believe, fine, but if you happen to come to this from a religious perspective, if you happen to already have a god, or believe in some sort of a deity that has some role to play in all of this, I think it's pretty helpful. Uh, so the theistic perspective is God wants us to underst- God wants us to understand the true nature of his creation. That's the reason He's driving us. And that's the reason He's given us the ability, uh, the, the creativity, the curiosity, the senses, and the drive to try to fully work out the true nature of creation. So sci- in this picture, scientists are in essence the messengers, trying their best to be truthful and accurate and bringing this understanding to their fellow humans. Science demonstrates that God's creation is magnificent beyond anything our ancient ancestors, including those who who wrote the Bible, could have envisioned. We may not yet know the answer to why, but we do know that it is not a meaningless question. Now there's one problem with this, at least for certain religious groups. Those like young earth creationists, those who wish to deny scientific findings as being contrary to their literal interpretation of scripture are taking, I think, a great risk. If I were the deity and people were denying the reality of the universe that I have given you and I have asked you, I've demanded of you that you go explore and describe, and you'd look at me and you say, oh, no, that can't be right because it wasn't, you know, it was 7,500 years ago and it all happened in seven days, I think I'd be a little annoyed. And I think what they're they're risking is actually being disrespectful to the creator by denying the glory of his creation. That's a controversial statement. I was warned not to make controversial statements, but that is. So I want to conclude. Uh, I don't care what you think about George Bush. He had a good speechwriter, and he gave some very eloquent speeches in his administration. This is an excerpt from the memorial speech he gave at Johnson Space Center after the death of the Columbia astronauts, and I think it's very apt for this to conclude this talk. Quote, this cause of exploration and discovery is not an option we choose. It is a desire written in the human heart. We are that part of creation which seeks to understand all creation. We find the best among us, send them forth into unmapped darkness, and pray they will return. They go in peace for all mankind, and all mankind is in their debt. So it's not an option that we have chosen. It's written in the human heart that we must do this. Okay, that's all I have. Any questions? So there is about five minutes if we hold the schedule for questions.
1: Thank you. With this impetus for discovery that's in the elephant words of the bush written in the human heart, what happens when we send surrogates our surrogates in robotic form or
0: other kinds of frozen space? What happens to that press? What happens to that desire? Okay. I said one of the in an early slide, I pointed out that one of the aspects of an explorer is creativity. And I believe those probes, our surrogates, are extensions of ourselves, extensions of our eyesight, extensions of our ability to... to, And actually, not just extensions, but an expansion of the kinds of senses that we as humans have, so that there, there are surrogates to do the things that we would like to do if we could be there. And someday we may be there. But But I think, in this sense... That it, since that urge to explore is written in the heart of the people who have designed and built those surrogates and launched them, and given up large portions of their own lives to to continue that quest, even though there's no obvious practical benefit to them doing that. So I think they are God's messengers, uh, just as much as the astronauts who go out and explore the moon
1: i like to hear your take on it. Is space discovery a luxury only during economic uh, times where there's prosperity, or you know when, when people can't put bread on the table? Is that, is that a time when, when, when we should cut NASA funding, and how would you argue for continuing NASA funding in the time of economic crisis?
0: Right. Um, okay, The the question was. In times of economic crisis, when people, some people are having difficulty putting bread on the table, is space a luxury? The space exploration is a luxury we really can't afford. Um, uh, I think it's something that we cannot afford to do. I mean, it is something that we must do. Now, admittedly, there are many countries around the world that Bangladesh does not have a space program. India does. You used to think of India as a relatively poor Country but the point of fact is they are, they have satellites orbiting the moon right now, okay, so you have to have a certain base level of uh, survivability you know on this world, but once you reach that level and, and we have the large brains that allow us to think beyond just surviving today I, I think it's an imperative that we continue to explore if you and also I should always point out that the NASA budget is a piddling portion of the national uh, uh, budget, the federal government's national budget. It's just a fraction of 1%, well below 1% of the national budget. So, And certainly way, way below that of the gross domestic product. So I think we need to do both. We need to feed our people. We need to house them. We need to make sure they have meaningful jobs. They need to have health care, et cetera, et cetera. But I think even within that broad context, uh, putting aside a small amount of our resources to continue God's work here, even though The federal government will not admit this is god's work but i believe it's god's work uh i think it's very important
1: um i think it's kind of deniable that the um the urge to explore is kind of human innate uh inhuman but if you get to and i would love to Western culture, our time and history, those sorts of things, because there do seem to be shifts back and forth. Of course, depending on where you live on uh, on the planet, you may find the society having very different attitudes about that specific type of exploration. And we need to be careful that we kind of don't, you know, put a specific type of exploration into that general drive. What do you say about that?
0: Well, I think. I've asked the question, why, do we, why are we so intent on finding biological activity elsewhere? Where, what, are, what would our reaction be if SETI, for example, actually detected a signal one of these days? You know? and, and I don't think it's a question of... I think it's, an, it's a question we're asking. It's not an answer that we can anticipate. And I think, it, 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 certainly in terms of our culture, our religious traditions and so forth, it would be very worthwhile to know. You know, did, as Jennifer mentioned, did did Jesus go to other planets and take other forms in order to bring salvation to to other cultures elsewhere? Um, so this is, in a sense, wrapped up in our in our social traditions, religious traditions, scientific traditions. But I think I think all of mankind would would resonate to the discovery of life elsewhere. I don't think it's so uniquely European. Uh, in its in its origins, um, be interesting to ask someone from a different, like Hindus. You know, do they think about these things? And and if life were found on another planet, how would that fit into their Hindu um, culture and religious tradition? And what would they interpret it as meaning? So, that's not a very precise answer to that question.
1: Yeah. To shift
0: back well, I think in that case, that is resource-limited, and I think okay. uh, it's interesting. That Let me go back to my fir- very first chart, if I could. I'll have to wrap it up. The chairman is being tough on me, so sorry, but I think this is kind of interesting. Killian's committee... There we go. Nine, 5 Oops, next. Okay. Killian's committee, and you can't read it, I'm sure, but it says on the second to the left pane, it says scientific objectives, early, later, still later, and much later. So the human planetary exploration is what's limited as much later. But It's kind of interesting to go through there and check off what we have and haven't yet accomplished. And, um, yeah, so... So, I think it is resource and technology limited to a very great degree, and I think if those weren't an issue, we'd have colonies on they they somewhere in there they talk about colonies on the moon. Any other questions before I get the hook, got the
1: hook.
0: I got the hook. Thank you very much, okay.